We are in Genesis 45 tonight as we are going to look at a message called The Revelation, The Great Revelation and Reconciliation. This is when Joseph is going to finally reveal himself to his brothers. Some would say this is the climax of the story. This is the pinnacle. This is what all of this has been leading to. And we're going to pray one more time. Father, as we now look to your word, thank you for the time of worship that we've had. Thank you for all the precious people that have come out tonight to worship you, to study your word, to hear from you. And we know we're going to hear from you, Lord, because your word is inspired. And you've breathed it out, and we want to take it in tonight. So let us set aside, lay aside all the weights, all the distractions, all the, even the pressures that we may have brought into this building tonight, and let, it, let them melt in the beauty of your presence as we see the shadow of the Messiah cast through the life of Joseph. May we find encouragement, may we find strength, may we find hope, may we find renewal, and maybe even reconciliation tonight. Father, whatever you want to do, we lay the time at your feet, pray you'll bless it, and lead it by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, uh, we have come to the pinnacle of the story, and what leads into it is something that we left off with last week, so let's just take a peek, Genesis 44, let's look at verse 30. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, Genesis 44.30, and the lad, that is Benjamin, Judah is speaking, is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will come about when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, verse 32, chapter 44, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad. Judah says, I will take Benjamin's place, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest I see the evil that would overtake my father? Now at this point when Joseph hears Judah's uh, plea for the life of Benjamin and says that he is willing to take Benjamin's place, which we saw as a beautiful picture of the Gospel. We pointed out that Judah is that uh, tribe from which Jesus springs. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when Joseph sees that Judah was willing to take Benjamin's place, he is overtaken. And one of the reasons that he is overtaken by, I think, joy that's going to turn into tears is because he realizes that the hearts of his brothers have changed. He realizes that they are not only concerned about Benjamin, but they're also concerned about their father. And Joseph has put them through the paces to really reveal their hearts. He's really put them through a series of tests. And it was the famine that drove them to Egypt, but then he spoke harshly to them. Then he made them spend some time in solitude, in prison. He made them even revisit what Joseph had gone through, or may have gone through at least in their minds. He let them experience that anguish of what they had done. He let them look into their hearts, uh, ponder their souls and their actions. He let them think about what they had done. Even though they didn't know it was Him, He was kind of putting them through the paces. And before we meet Jesus Christ, we have moments in our lives, they may be seasons, they may be long stretches for a lot of us before we actually officially met the Lord, where He causes us to look into our souls. He causes us to see our sin for what it is and our need for a Savior. 
And if I interviewed each of you tonight and I asked you, what led up to that moment of your justification? What led up to that moment when you were born again of the Holy Spirit? I think a lot of us would say, I felt like I was experiencing conviction at every turn. I was meeting Christians everywhere. I barely met a Christian and then everywhere I turned there were Christians and all of them were inviting me to church. What is going on, right? And we know that God is a seeker of the lost. Jesus said He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He seeks us out. That's the beauty of what God had done here. And they were driven by the famine. They had to end up in Egypt. And of course, behind all of this was the hand of God. And Joseph, chapter 45, verse 1, could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried. And he said, Have everyone go out from me. Clear the room. So that there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So Joseph cleared the room. He finally is going to reveal himself. Can you imagine how many times he was tempted to tell them in some exchange that he was having through the interpreter, I am Joseph. You remember the story of the first Batman when, was it Michael Keaton was practicing? I'm Batman, I'm Batman, but he couldn't quite get it out. I wonder how many times Joseph, that's a bad illustration, huh? but anyway, I wonder how many times Joseph wanted to just come out and say it and he had to kind of stuff it down. I am your brother, I am Joseph. No, I'm sure he replayed that many times in his uh life and prison experience and time in Potiphar's house. And this whole moment is going to be the casting of the shadow of the Messiah. This is where we have talked in times past about typology in the Bible. And when we studied 1 Samuel, we said that David is a type of Jesus, a type of the Messiah, a type of the Anointed One. Not in all the behavior that David did, but in some of the cases. And Joseph also casts a beautiful shadow of the Messiah as he reveals himself to his brothers. The book of John says he came to his own, but his own did not recognize him. Before his brothers even realized it was Joseph, Joseph knew who they were, and he and we'd have to argue from what we're about to see that he loved them. And before you ever knew God, God knew you, And before you ever loved God, God loved you. We love Him because He first loved us. He wove us together in our mother's womb. Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah 1.5, I knew you, God says to the young prophet. And I have called you to be a prophet to the nations. And I I shared with you something that David Jeremiah shared a few weeks ago, that before anybody ever touched you, or loved you, God did. And Joseph knows who his brothers are, and it's been within his power to do whatever he wanted to do with them. He could have not given them grain. He could have kept them in prison for a long time. But, but Joseph's bent was reconciliation. He wanted to be reconciled to his brothers. He wanted to see his father again. He deeply desired to be reconciled to Benjamin, even though Benjamin had no part in his being sold into slavery. He had a plan, and he was taking his brothers through the paces to get to the plan of reconciliation. And that is one way that he casts the shadow of God. God wants to get you to a point of reconciliation. So Jesus came into the world, and God was in the world, in Christ, 
reconciling the world to Himself. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. That He's no longer counting our sins against us, those of us who are reconciled, because God had a plan. And that was to bring us back to Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. And these brothers have been carrying the guilt for 20 plus years of what they had done. We've seen in uh, other Bible verses where they say, you know, God has uncovered our guilt. God is the one behind this. Now comes the reckoning for our brother's blood. They sense God is working through this mystery man who is a viceroy or a prime minister in Egypt. God demonstrates His own love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's what Romans 5.9 says, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And now we exult in this reconciliation. To be reconciled to somebody means there is a problem, by the way. You know, if you need to be reconciled, there's an issue, right? And the, the issue that we have between us and God is that our sin has made a separation. And so the church has now been given a ministry. And our ministry is the ministry of reconciliation. It's as though God were pleading through us for people to be reconciled to God. And so God has made the way of reconciliation through the blood of the cross. So Joseph, verse 1, chapter 45, could not control himself. So he sends everybody else out of the room and this is when Joseph is now about to make himself known. Um, can you imagine when he cried out and cleared the room? They still don't know it's Joseph. Can you imagine what they're thinking? What is going on with this, this beardless viceroy of Egypt? man? This guy is an emotional dude, right? He's gotten emotional several times. He's had to leave the room several times. He's hidden it, of course, for the most part, but now Joseph can't handle it anymore. One writer says they watched this man in astonishment. The muscular, beardless viceroy wailed uncontrollably and they were clueless, they were helpless, and they were trembling. And so Joseph now is going to reveal himself to his brothers and he wept loudly, verse 2, so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it, or they heard so he wailed so loudly that even the people that left the room heard him crying. There's a couple times in Jesus' ministry when he cried. He cried at the tomb of Lazarus, you remember. And uh, it says in John 11.35 that Jesus wept. Why did he weep? He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But we can only conjecture, we can say that we think he wept because he saw the brokenness of what sin and death does to people. We think he wept because we, we know his, his friend had died and we know the, the uh, drama and the tension that it caused to people that he loved. But, but Lazarus is really a picture of all humanity. We die. Sometimes you know, there are sad circumstances around our death and that is because of sin. And so Jesus at the tomb and even over Jerusalem, he wailed over the city. And he said in Luke 13.34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, yet you would not have it or you were unwilling. He had a broken heart. 
for people who would not respond to Him. And God is a God who wants us to be reconciled, but we have a part. Did you hear those words? But you, I wanted to, but you were what? Unwilling. You wouldn't come. You're not willing to come to Me, Jesus said in John 5, that you might have life. And so the message of reconciliation does go out. God does desire men and women, uh, people of every age, to uh, be reconciled to Him. And so here's Joseph now, and he's weeping and he's wailing, and everybody hears it. And Joseph said to his brothers, look at verse 3, I am Joseph. Now can you imagine, those words must have just rocked (laughs) the brothers. They, it must have just stunned them. They were trying to figure this guy, out, this guy out, but now he says, I am Joseph. And then he says, is my father still alive? It's been 22 years, we'll find out, since he, is, uh, he was sold into slavery. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Have you ever been in a situation where you are in stunned silence? You're so rocked to your core that words cannot come out. There are no words. I am Joseph. What? Now can you imagine all the emotion that had been bottled up in Joseph for all this time, but now all the emotion that begins begins to come to the surface for the brothers? What? You're not dead? You're you're that guy that's been doing all this stuff to us? You, Joseph? I mean, they had to be just blown away. And then I'm sure that their guilt rose to the surface because I think they had concluded as a group that somehow he had died and they would never see him again. Now all of a sudden they had to deal with their guilt. Now all of a sudden they had to come face to face with the one that they had hurt so deeply, the one that they had sold into slavery, and the one that we know they had regretted in uh, the things that they had done. The New Living Translation says his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there right in front of them. Romans 3.19 says that the law of God shuts every mouth. It silences every mouth because every excuse that we can make about why we do what we do or the justifications we make before God, the, the law, the light of the law closes our mouth. It presents every life guilty before God. I was, I've told this story before, but it illustrates the point. I was witnessing to a guy, and uh, he was uh, a guy that oversaw a prison, and he was married, and uh, you know, he had a couple of kids, and he was a family man. And I began to share the gospel with him, and he said, I don't think I need that. I'm a, I'm a good guy. And he said, you know, I, I'm faithful to my wife, and I oversee a prison, and I show up to work every day and I work hard. White picket fence, 2.5 kids, a dog named Spot. You've heard it all before, right? I don't think I need Jesus. Now those guys that are in the prison I oversee probably need Jesus, but I don't think I do. So what I did was, instead of commenting on the guys in the prison, and he said oftentimes they, you know, they say they have a conversion and they're back in my prison six months later. <clears throat> and I said, well, let me ask you a question. And I began to just go through some of the law. I said, have you ever lied? Have you ever lusted after someone who's not your spouse? Have you ever taken the name of the Lord in vain? Have you ever put another God before the God of the Bible? And when the light of the law shone on him, rather than comparing himself to other people, he began to compare himself to the holy standards of God. And it shut his mouth. And he went, oh, I've never thought about it like that before. He was always seeing his 
alleged need for Christ, in quotes, uh, as compared to other people. But when the light of the law, and by the way, the law of God is a direct reflection of the nature of God. The law of God reflects God's character. And so when we misuse the name of God, we, we are lowering the, the standard of who God is. We can't lower His holiness, but we are taking His name in vain and so forth. Well, they were stunned. And their guilt was revealed. And now they are right before Joseph. Chrysostom says, I am surprised at the way they could stand there and gape without their soul parting company with their body. <laughs> without their going out of their mind or hiding themselves in the ground. Close quote. Have you ever been there before where you just want to go somewhere and hide? Like, oh no. <laughs> Please don't shine that light on me anymore. Now Joseph at this point, if you're Joseph, here's an opportunity. You could say something like this. I am Joseph and you are all a bunch of no good slugs. How could you do this to me? I mean, I'm sure he could have rehearsed that many, many times, right? Just because of the coat? Just because of the dreams? Really? And he could have said to the guards, banish them forever. Kill them all. I want nothing to do with them ever again. But God had been doing some work, not only on the brothers' hearts, but on Joseph's heart. And Joseph said to his brothers something that had to stun them. He said, please, come closer to me. Come. And they came closer. You can imagine some of them were trying to probably get in the back of the line. <laughs> you go first. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. You know, when Jesus was in the... Uh, he met with the disciples in Luke 24. and They were frightened and they thought they had seen a spirit. And Jesus said, touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have come. The invitation in the Bible, even when we see our sin for what it is and we see how many times we have rejected the God of the Bible, how many times maybe we have walked away from the truth of the Gospel or rejected the truth of Messiah, Jesus says, come. Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come. You know, the old hymn at the Billy Graham Crusades, Come Just As You Are. Hear the Spirit call. Come with your guilt. Come with your shortcomings. Come with all the emotions you're feeling right now. Come. You know, sometimes we, we get this notion that we, we have to clean up our lives before we can come to Christ. So there are people who say, you know, you invite them to church and they go, I don't know if I should come to that place. Lightning may just... It might just strike me when I come through the door. And usually I say to them, it may. <laughs> so let us know when you're coming. I'd like to be ten feet away. No, just kidding. No, we come just as we are. Because the Spirit's calling us. James Montgomery Boyce, commentator on the Bible, was talking about Reverend E.V. Hill. Do you remember E.V. Hill, Baptist preacher out of Los Angeles? Well, he says, some time ago, Reverend E.V. Hill, a great preacher from Los Angeles, was in Philadelphia speaking to an annual gathering of black Baptist churches. 
He was speaking on the expulsion of Adam and Eve from Eden. Dr. Hill is dramatic on occasion, and I think uh, Boyce and Hill are now with the Lord. He said he's, he's dramatic on occasion, but he was especially so on this one. Seated next to him on the platform was the leader of the Baptist Federation. When he got to the point of the story in which Adam and Eve were driven from Eden, Dr. Hill took off his long preaching robe, placed it on his distinguished colleague, using it to represent his sin. Then he ordered him out of the church. For many long moments, Hill kept saying to the man, Leave! Leave the church! Get out of the church! Leave now! Finally, his friend got up from his seat, walked down from the steps of the platform, turned and made his way down the center aisle to the main door of the church and stepped outside. Then Dr. Hill posted two angels, in quotes, who were deacons at the door, and instead uh, and insisted that they do their job and not permit the leader of the Federation of Churches to return into the building. There was a moment of silence after the out, this outrageous demonstration. But then Hill began to preach on grace. He explained how sin separates us from the presence of a holy God, but how Jesus died on the cross to remove this sin. He explained the gospel invitation before Christ's work. God's word to us was, Go! Get out! But now, through Christ's work, He says, Come. Come just as you are. The illustration hit the mark. Because in Eden, when we fell, we were told, go, right? And Adam is the federal head of all of us, right? And he was kicked out of the garden and two angels guarded the way. But even in Genesis 3, there is the pre-evangel. There is this idea that one is coming who will crush the serpent's head and we can be let back into Eden, reconciled back to God. God does not say to the sinner, Go! He says, Come. But you must come through Jesus Christ because there's going to be a day where Jesus Christ will judge people. You know, He is the judge. And some people will be told, Go! Depart from Me, for I never The ones who will be bidden to come will be those who are cleansed by the blood and cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God does not say go. God says come, but you must come through His Son. I am Joseph. I am your brother. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on Me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over Him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. I am Joseph, who you sold into slavery. We can almost hear the words ringing through eternity. I am Jesus, whom you crucified. But He still says, come. He invites them to come close to touch, to hear His voice, to know that it is He. He hurried to calm them. Verse 5 makes it clear that they were both grieved and angry with themselves. And He said, Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. It reminds me of Nehemiah 8.10 where it says, Don't be grieved 
the joy of the Lord is your strength. Because you sold me here, notice Joseph, for God sent me before you to preserve life. I think Joseph had been doing some face time with God. And I think over these 22 years, Joseph had learned something, but it took him a while. He had to see kind of the complete picture and now he saw it. And because Joseph had spent time with the Lord, at this moment he was able to say, come instead of go. He was able to say, it's okay, God was behind this instead of you dirty rascals, get out of my sight forever. And if we are going to learn how to forgive, if you and I are going to learn the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ, to extend it to other people, we're going to have to spend time with the One who's forgiven us. Amen? We're going to have to realize the mammoth mountain of sin that was forgiven in my life so that it becomes easier for me to forgive others. If you were in Joseph's sandals right now, there would probably be a number of nasty things that you could feel justified in saying. I'm not sure if we were in the same spot, we would say, oh, don't be mad at yourselves. Wouldn't you want them to grovel in it just for a little while? No, I take that back. Go ahead and feel terrible. right? But I think he already knew that they had come to a place of dealing with their sin. And so he says, don't, don't be grieved, don't be angry. Don't be angry with yourselves. God sent me before you to preserve life. When, when we feel guilt and we don't rest in the forgiveness of Christ, what ends up happening is we become consumed by guilt. You know, the IRS now has a guilt fund. They've had it for quite some time. There are people that write checks to the IRS, not because the IRS has caught them, but because the IRS knows that you have a conscience. Actually, they call it the conscience fund. And I heard a story about a guy who wrote a check to the IRS and he said, I'm writing this check to you uh, and he wrote it for some, you know, $500 and he said, if my conscience continues to bother me, I'll write a check for the balance. <laughs> well, now you've just exposed yourself, right? And you know, when we forgive other people, we also set them free. You know, sometimes we, we have experiences in life where we know there's hurt way back there and then it comes kind of full circle and we realize even though I've let that go, somebody else hasn't let it go. And you're like, wow. You may have dealt with God on that particular subject and maybe you're good and you're free. And look, I'll qualify this by saying as much as it depends on us, we live at peace with all people. We try to reconcile with people, right? But sometimes it's a matter of timing. Do you know that there's some people, maybe you've dealt with God on these matters and it's been lifted off your shoulders, but it's still something that bothers them. Or they haven't let it go. So sometimes when we extend and receive forgiveness, it's not just about us. (laughs) Amen? It can be about somebody else. And notice, Joseph's going to say four times, he's going to talk about God's providential hand. And we've all heard the concept of God's providence, that God works things together for good. He said, God sent me before you to preserve life. Wait a minute. God sent you? I thought we sold you into slavery. Oh, you did. But ultimately, God was behind it. Can you see life that way? Can you see some of your worst times that way? That God actually was weaving together a tapestry 
Now, God exploits even the evil intentions of people for His good. You know, we're told in Acts chapter 4 as they pray that the events that happened in the city of Jerusalem by Pontius Pilate and Herod were all part of the predetermined plan of God. That's how majestic God is in His ways. I don't understand it all. I'll say that right now. I don't understand it all. But God was the one that was behind it. God was working all things together. How many things does He work together for good? All things together for good to those who love Him. Not some things. He works all things. And that's hard when we face tragedies and difficulties and question marks in our soul. But Joseph's insight is found at the end of verse 5. He says, God sent me before you to preserve life. In Luke 9.56, when the sons of thunder said, let's destroy the village, Jesus says, no, the Son of Man did not come to ruin men's lives or destroy men's lives, but to save them. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save. The ministry of the church is to throw out the net of salvation and then uh, obviously to build up believers. Donald uh, Gray Barnhouse, who by the way lost his wife, at a, he had a little five or six year old daughter when his wife died, said, quote, to see God in all things, both good and evil, enables us to forgive more easily those who injure us, close quote. Now Joseph goes on in verse 6, he says, for the famine has been in the land these two years. Now we, know, we get an idea of the total time and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. So we're, we're uh, now, um, well, we had seven years of plenty and then we're two years into the famine. And he says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. Let's just do the math real quick. So we have this 13 years, seven years of plenty, plus two years into the famine. So it's been 22 years since Joseph was sold into slavery. So he says, God sent me before you to preserve life. God used a second time now. To preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive, notice, by a great deliverance. Joseph had not allowed misfortune to sour him. He had actually drawn closer to God through it. Now, I don't know where you are tonight, but sometimes misfortune sours us. Some people walk away from God. Some people walk away from the church. Some people don't want to hear it anymore. They get soured. And Joseph had a lot of moments to get soured, but he pressed into God. And he saw that God was bringing a great deliverance. Now we all know, as the next book of the Bible unfolds, that this is how God gets the children of Israel to Egypt. It's a fairly small group, around 70 people, right, that make the pilgrimage from uh, Israel, Canaan, into the land of Goshen. But by the time they leave, 400 years later, uh, they leave Egypt to go out and worship God at the mountain of God. They have become over a million people. They have multiplied in the land of Egypt. God has preserved the remnant, and they are the 12 tribes of Israel, and through them comes who? The Messiah. So God was working a huge plan out that would encompass the whole world. Joseph is a type of Jesus. God sent me to save. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. God sent His Son into the world to save, to preserve. 
to bring a great deliverance. Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Do you notice that every time Joseph says this, he lifts the burden off their shoulders one more time? They have to be feeling horrible about what they had done. And each time he says, no, God was behind this. How do we know? Because God gave Joseph the dreams that got them angry in the first place, right? And God was doing what He does. And He has made me a father to Pharaoh. Something I think here like an advisor, verse 8. And Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph just steps back and says, look what God has done. Have you ever done that before? I was having lunch with a young man who I had the privilege of leading to the Lord when he was a teenager. Today he's walking with the Lord. He has a great young family. He's coaching baseball. He's he's on fire for the Lord. He's sharing with other men. And he says, sometimes I just need to step back and count my blessings and realize what God has done in my life. And I reminded him today that he went through some serious loss when he was younger. He lost his mom and dad at a fairly young age. And, um, but he can see the hand of God and what God has done in his life. And I think he's in awe of what God has done. Joseph says, look at what God has done. He says, hurry up, verse 9. Go, to, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. Notice the fourth time. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. Now, Dad's not there. Jacob's not there. But remember, when Jacob sent them away with Benjamin, Jacob was like, if I lose my offspring, I lose them. My gray hairs are going down to Sheol. Oy vey, these sons of mine. I mean, I think that the last thing that Jacob was thinking was that he was going to be reconciled to his long-lost son that he thought was dead. God is a God of miracles. This is a miraculous uh, story. Go and tell my father. Part of what we do, you know, once we get reconciled to Jesus Christ, and you can see Joseph is a type of Christ, the brothers are a type of the people who get saved, the church, if you will. And now he says, go tell my father. Once we get saved, we have the same invitation that we have received, come to me, we now give to others. And we... We often want to start with our families, right? Go tell dad, look at what God has done, right? So we, we go tell people, come and see. Now when we, when we first get saved, if we start with our family, this doesn't always go well. Ever been there before? Alright everybody, I'm a Christian now. Got a huge family Bible. Whack your brother over there. <laughs> Listen up. Everybody's becoming Christians now, now that I've been walking with the Lord for 48 hours. Right? And you know how well that usually goes over with family, right? So we have to be careful. But it is come and see, John 1.39. Come, where are you staying, Rabbi? Come and you will see. Nathaniel said to Philip, can anything good come out of Corona? <laughs> actually, actually, it's Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. John 4.29 The woman at the well said, Come see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Come and see. Come and see. Have you ever said that to somebody? Come and see. Come and see where the Lord lay. He says, You shall live in the land of Goshen, verse 10, 
By the way, there's some debate about who the Pharaoh of the Exodus is, but there was one group that had Semitic background that took over leadership in Egypt for a while, and then they were finally uh, taken out. Um, And they set up their capital at a place called Tanis. You've probably heard about the city of Tanis in the Indiana Jones movies in the Delta region. There are some scholars that believe the reason that Joseph uh, got to the second position so quickly was that there was a the people leading Egypt at the time had Semitic origins. That's just side note. But uh, they, they had their capital in Tanis in the Delta region, a little bit away from the Nile. You shall live in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. So you come to the Lord. You start to share your faith with others. And one of the things that the Lord wants you to do is not only come near Him, but He wants you to get to know Him. Christianity is not just about a ticket to heaven. As cool as that is, I want my ticket, believe me. And I've got it through the finished work of Christ. But now we want to get to know Him better. That's what Ephesians 1.17 says. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened so that you might know the riches of your inheritance, paraphrasing, and that you may get to know Him better. That's one of the goals of the Christian life now, is to get to know Him better. Where are you on that? You feel like you know Him better today than you did a year ago? I hope so. He says, I want everybody here. I want all the family. He says, there I will also provide for you. Look at verse 11. You know, God provides. For there are still five years of famine to come, and we have to learn to let God be our provision, lest you and your household and all that you have be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. He reaffirms everything. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt, and that all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Go and get dad. And tell him about the glory that you have seen. And then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Now, Benjamin wasn't part of the group that sold him into slavery, but everybody else was. So, remember, he's been given Benjamin extra pancakes, right? <laughs> and, and now you can understand this tearful reunion with the you know, his, his brother from the same parents, same mom and dad. But how about these other scoundrels? What would you do? Would you hug Benjamin? And then the other one, would you just give him a fist? Like, all right, yeah. Yeah. But no, look what he does. He kissed, verse 15. Paul, you're going to love this verse. Paul, he kissed all his brothers. All of them. With a holy kiss. <laughs> and he wept on them. And afterwards, this is the first time that we know that the brothers have said something. They've just been stunned silence the whole time, trying to pick up their chin from off the floor. Now the brothers talked with him. Boy, they had a lot of catching up to do, didn't they? So they talked. And they needed this word of reassurance. And Joseph just continued to chat with him. I don't know how long it took, but he took some time. Paul says, I want to know him. 
I want to know the power of His resurrection and even the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Philippians 3.10 Jesus says, John 10.27 My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they, they follow Me. Now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brother, brother 16 had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts, go to the land of Canaan, take your father and your households and come to Me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. You know, the Bible tells us in Romans 8, 17 and 18, we are co-heirs with Christ. Everything that He has, since He's an heir, He's the heir, we are co-heirs with Christ. And we're told in Matthew 25, you've, you've done well. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will give you charge over many things. Enter into the joy of your Master. Co-heirs with Christ. You ain't going to have a shack in heaven. right? You're a co-heir with Christ. What does that mean? I don't know everything it means. But I'll tell you what, it sounds pretty cool. To be a co-heir with Christ. Sometimes we underestimate what awaits us, folks. We think, well, i got a nice house now. A couple thousand square feet. What's it going to be like in heaven? Oh, it'll be better. Believe me. I was teaching a class uh, of 4th through 6th graders. shared this story before, but it's pretty humorous. And I was talking about how in the New Jerusalem and what God restores according to Revelation 21 and 22, it's going to be like Eden restored. And I had this little boy in the class and he said, my brothers and I were talking about this. And he said, and if it's going to be like being back in the Garden of Eden, I just have one question, Pastor Michael. Are we going to be naked? I really want to know if we're going to have clothes on. And I said, I think we're going to have clothes. <laughs> That's what I'm counting on. It talks about white robes and that kind of thing. I'm clinging to it. Anyway. <laughs> then the sons of Israel did so, verse 21, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, probably festive, festive garments or festival garments. But to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. I, I think these are symbols of reconciliation, but... Also, Joseph's heart towards, especially Benjamin, but the family. And to his father he sent as follows. Ten donkeys, verse 23, loaded with the best things of Egypt. This is almost reminiscent of when they leave Egypt after the Exodus. Ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So he sent his brothers away and they departed and he said to them, gotta love this, don't fight on the journey. <laughs> Isn't that great? Don't quarrel. Now, you parents, you need to mark this. This is a Bible verse. You are quoting the Bible when you look into the back seat and say, Stop fighting! And you try to reach back and try to keep your eyes on the road. It's biblical. <laughs> Come on, people. Don't you like verses like this? Just quote it. Just say, Genesis 45, 24. Don't quarrel on the journey. And then I would have something to threaten them with. Anyway. 
Now, what would they, why would Joseph say this? Why would they be fighting on the journey? Well, can you imagine? Once they leave Joseph's presence, you know, you have that high, you go to the retreat, mountaintop experience. Oh, this is great. I'm walking with the Lord 24-7, 365. Then you get in freeway traffic and you're like, ah! You go home feeling pretty spiritual. Nobody at the house has had the experience you just had. Like, yeah, right, Holy Joe. <laughs> Welcome back to the valley. Don't quarrel. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, I'd like to speak to you as spiritual, but I can't. I've got to speak to you as babies in Christ. You know why? I wanted to give you solid food, but you can't handle it. All you can handle is milk because there's quarreling and divisions among you. You fight and squabble and quarrel like you still belong to the world. Paraphrasing. You're, here's Paul. You're a bunch of babies. Ooh. Now, what would they fight about? Well, they might say, I, it's your fault. You're the one that... I know he said God was behind this, but you're the problem here. If you wouldn't act like, you know, and look, after we become Christians, this is a problem. We're, what's the source of our quarrels and conflicts? James 4.2. <laughs> it comes from here, from our flesh, right? We fight and quarrel. We walk in the flesh instead of in the Spirit. And even though they've had this encounter, call it this revelation of Joseph, reconciliation, we still got to battle this flesh of ours, don't we? We've got to say, Lord, You get the upper hand. Let my flesh die. Let the Spirit reign. Then they went up from Egypt 25 and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, saying, Joseph, look at 26, is still alive. And indeed, he is ruler over all the land of Egypt, but he was stunned, for he did not believe them. And when they told him all the words that Joseph had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. You know, I don't know how long it took, but Jacob was home of course, with some of the, the family still there and probably some servants. And you know what? He was probably expecting the worst. And when they come back, they got all the, the stuff from Egypt, Cadillacs and Mercedes-Benz and stuff. And just kidding. And anyway, they, and he's like, wow, what? And he revived. You know, revival is a word we use in the church. We, we pray for revival, right? And to be revived means to come back to life. Joseph, it was like he, he became young again. You know, life had weighted old, uh, sorry, Jacob, had weighted old Jacob down. Jacob lost Joseph, and he had grieved him for a long, long time. He was wondering now what was going to happen with Benjamin. What was it? Simeon was in, in prison, and he, he said things like this Everything is against me. And he lived under a dark cloud for a couple of decades. I don't know if that's you tonight. I don't know if you've stood on some corners or closed the back door and yelled words like that. Everything is against me. But once he heard that Joseph was alive and the position that he had, Jacob came back to life again. And you know, the Bible says that when Jacob was renamed Israel, 
I've suggested to you that the name Israel probably best translated means God prevails. And God prevailed. And a great reunion day was coming and God gave Jacob beauty for ashes. He gave him the garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that He may be glorified. And Israel said, notice the name, Israel said, God prevails, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Beauty for ashes. My son, who I thought was dead all these years, is alive again. It's almost like Joseph becomes not only a type of the Messiah in his revealing himself to his brothers and the reconciliation, but it's almost like there's a type of the resurrection here. Amen? Jacob thought Joseph was dead and gone, and he realizes he's alive. And now he's going to have a great reunion. And I believe this great reunion that will happen now in the land of Egypt is a picture of a reconciliation, or I should say better, a reunion and restoration when we see our loved ones who have gone on before us in a place where they're very much alive. Because not, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this great story of Joseph. Joseph definitely cast the shadow of Jesus Christ. You know, the book of Revelation is the revealing of Jesus Christ. And Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. There was reconciliation and forgiveness, a restoration, a new land, provisions, and a great reunion. And Lord, the Gospel is all through this glorious picture. I am Joseph. And I think one day, Jesus will say to us, Come. Come close. I am. And Jesus, the one that you have come to know and love, though you have not seen me, you've loved me. I am Jesus. And I think, Lord, on that day you will invite us near to come and touch you, to even see the nail scars in your hands and in your side and your feet, and to look upon the one who loved us with a great love, forgave us of all of our sins and paid the ransom price. And and we are so grateful for this beautiful account, Lord. And it is our story, Joseph's story. The story of Israel is our story. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of the church. It's the story of a great Redeemer. Give us hope, renewed hope. Revive us, Lord, like You revived Jacob. Bring revival to our personal walks, our families, our commitment to You as we dwell in the land of Goshen, as we dwell in the land where there is plenty, as we get to know You better, as we look forward to that time when we will be with You face to face.